Hello and welcome to Bar Afrique, the show where we tell the unexplored stories of African independence. I'm Lynn Tala. And I'm Sarah Masiwa. And Lynn and I have spent many a night with a cocktail in hand talking about African decolonization. So we figured why not make a podcast out of it. All right, well, let's jump into the story for today. Today, we have no guest. It's just Sarah and I. Very cool. I think it's very, very cool. So today we are drinking Amarula cream liqueur, which and the cocktail we made today is made of double cream, which is also called whipped cream with vanilla ice cream. And so Amarula cream liqueur is inspired by the spirit of the Marula Marula tree. The marula trees cannot be cultivated, and only once a year, at the peak of summer, the marula trees bear their sacred fruit. They also are protected under the South African law and cannot be farmed for commerce. The cream liqueur that we are drinking today was first introduced in 1989. It tastes really nice. It's good. We're just drinking ice cream. <laughs> Basically, yeah, we're ice like, cream. Money you make a cocktail with ice cream and double cream and that's a cocktail. <laughs> it's um it tastes really really yeah, good. Yeah, it's blended ice cream. All right, Sarah. What are we talking about today? Well, before we do that, I have a question for you. Oh yeah. Okay. So, on every episode, we bring on an African-born guest. Mhm. If you could have any guest on oh this God. podcast, oh God, who would you have? <laughs> that is a really big question. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you mine because I feel like it's really like revealing. Okay, now that you're embarrassed to tell to tell me yours, you have to tell me who is it. I don't want to. You say yours no, first. No, 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 no. no you say yours first. No. <laughs> No, okay, we'll, we'll say it at the same time. No, we can't because I'm still thinking about mine. Well, when you... I'm going to give you five seconds. No, just tell me yours. No, because I feel like I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed. Why are you embarrassed? Because it's like not... It's not a smart people answer. That's fine. Yeah, no, but you say yours. Say yours. Just, I'm going to give you five seconds. Let me give you five seconds of silence. You figure it out. <laughs> Honestly, who would I love on our podcast? You know what? I would like Lupita Nyong'o on our podcast. That's a good choice. I would love her on our podcast, even though I know she bails out of projects a lot. But I would really like her to be on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Do you want to hear mine? Yes. Okay. Mine is... John Boyega. Wait, that's a really good answer. Why you thought it was yours? was really good as well. Um, John Boyega and Lupita Nyong'o, if you're listening, just tell your agents to contact us. We would love to have you on our podcast. Yeah, I think it'd just be reach really out fun. To us on YouTube, <laughs> or Spotify. We'd or love Instagram. to have you. Anyway, anyway, you can find out. Anyway. All right, Sarah, tell us what we're talking about today. Okay, today's story is kind of weird, but I want to tell it anyway. Um, It's called The Lost Kings of the Nile. Okay, where are you taking us, Egypt? Yes, I am taking us to Egypt. Mm. 
So Egypt's really interesting and kind of unique and I think like the grand scheme of like what we talk about mm-hmm. because the question of whether or not Egypt was colonized is quite interesting. Mm. And and kind of where I sit on the answer is that like in this specific time period of like the 1800s, 1900s, it was not. Right? Yeah. Egypt was not colonized by the British. Um, in fact, Egypt was colonizing other countries. Um, famously, it colonized Sudan, which became South Sudan and Sudan. Yeah. Um, so kind of where the backstory to, to kind of where we are and what we're starting is that like in the 1800s, if you're looking at Egypt, Napoleon has just left. Right. Right. Um, and kind of in the power vacuum, what's interesting is this guy comes um, who he's an Albanian soldier. Um, who's Albanian kind of soldier? Albanian. Very interesting. He's come from Albania. They're still part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, he is not, he's been sent there kind of to, in like the forces to kind of take down Napoleon mm-hmm. and that never quite quite realizes. He kind of rises through the ranks, maneuvers himself into a position to become so powerful that, you know, within a couple of decades, he becomes the king of Egypt. From Albania? He's from Albania. Yes. But okay. it's but I think like looking in like kind of the historical Yeah. You know, the historical, like the big picture of Egypt, they're still technically part of the Ottoman Empire. Egypt is traditionally not ruled by Egyptians, mm-hmm. right? So even if you're looking at like Cleopatra, right. if you're kind of looking at people who are European. Yeah. In fact, by that point, Egypt hadn't been ruled by an Egyptian for about a thousand years. Oh, wow. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. You're kind of looking at like a like a, a, a pattern of foreigners coming and kind of establishing these yeah. monarchies and these dynasties yeah. um, in Egypt. So, and, and that's what this guy does. And, and he establishes what's called the Muhammad Ali dynasty. You said Muhammad Ali? Yes. Yeah, okay. I know. <laughs> not the boxer. Although I feel at this Maybe. point that this episode would have been more interesting. <laughs> If Muhammad Ali the boxer had established a dynasty in <laughs> and Egypt. The king of Egypt. Yeah, I wish that's the story I was telling, but it's not. Um, so yeah, so beginning of the 1800s, the Muhammad Ali dynasty begins. They pull off some pretty impressive like development plans. Okay. Right? What year is that? This is the beginning of the 1800s. Okay. Right, so we're not looking at like 1800s to 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of towards the end of that century, what happens is that, you know, these kings, they borrowed a ton of money to make this development agenda happen. And they also spend really extravagantly. Yeah. Um, and they've gotten Egypt into like a really, really bad financial crisis. Yikes. Um, and they turn to the Europeans to bail themselves out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> The end. <laughs> they turned the Europeans um, to a council, which is headed by France and and Britain. Right. Um, kind of seeing like we're in this bad position. We need some help. Um, and France and Britain. They say no. No, they don't say no, which I always think would have been better. Um, they kind of say, you know, you know us. We're always happy to help. Oh, my God. Of Um, course they're happy to help. They're like, we're going to take control of your treasury. 
in which does not sound like the beginning of a good story it's not it's not a good story it's the lost king of the nile um so the monarchy spoiler alert it ends oh shit but um yeah so france and and britain kind of say like in response for like helping you right in this moment we're gonna take control of the treasury mm-hmm. um they also forgive debt which is huge for egypt which mm-hmm. is kind of what they want um, but the biggest thing and kind of what determines foreign policy over the next 100 years is they say, we want control of the Suez Canal, right? The French say that. Yes, the French and the British. Okay. Which is huge because yeah. at this point, like the Suez Canal is obviously, for anyone who doesn't know, it's one of the most important like shipping channels exactly, yeah. in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So it kind of it's this channel that goes past Egypt. Um, tons of countries are using it. Um, and that the French and the British through, you know, what's called a European Council are kind of like, we, we in return for forgiving your debt, would like control of this thing. Mm-hmm. And it begins essentially what is a European invas- invasion, like predominantly, excuse me, by the British. Like the British are the ones who really take this opportunity. Um, so, yeah. So end of the century, that's kind of the world that we're looking in. Um, you have, you know, you have Egypt who are still technically not colonized, but they have now a British presence on the Suez Canal, which they're kind of uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. They don't love having it there, um, but that's that's the position they've negotiated themselves into. Right. 1900s, World War One starts. The Ottoman Empire is obviously on the losing side. Exactly. Right. Egypt doesn't really participate in that way. It's not. It's not in it. It's not in it. Okay. Right? But what happens is kind of like Britain kind of treats it like it's part of the Ottoman Empire. And they're like, you know, you're, you're going to become a protectorate of Britain. Right. Okay. In the same way that a lot of the Ottoman Empire did at the end of World War One. But that doesn't really work. And literally by the 1920s, the Egyptian people are revolting. They're like, we, we're not colonized. We don't really want to be part of this. Leave us out of it. We're independent. So the British are trying to treat them as if they were as colonized. if they're a colony. Okay. Right? Yeah. But the I think the, the Egyptians are quite strong in terms of making sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and a large part of that is because of this like dynasty of kings that's happening and like okay and their that role. makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 1930s, which is really the key moment in our story. Mm-hmm. 1936. There's a lot of back and forth between Britain and Egypt. There's a lot of, I think both sides, the monarchy of Egypt and the British kind of believe that they're entitled to rule in this moment. Hmm. They're like, this is my country. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the back and forth is kind of between the two of them. Yeah. So the, the kind of compromise they come to in 1936 is that they can sign this treaty which says that Britain must withdraw all their troops except for what's absolutely necessary to guard the Suez Canal, okay. which is 10,000 troops, and they can't exceed that. That's still a lot of I mean, troops. It, it is, yeah. It's <laughs> a lot of people. But it was more than, it was less than what like, the British wanted. Okay. Yeah. So Britain has to like pull out their troops except for 10,000 people. Yeah. In return, Britain kind of puts in this clause that says that 
if Egypt ever comes after, uh, like under existential threat, Britain has the right and I guess the obligation to defend Egypt on its own behalf. As in basically treating them as a colony. Kind of. Britain's kind of like, if you ever are in a position where you feel like you're about to be annihilated as a country, mm-hmm. we'll intervene. We'll step in for you. Huh. Right. What happens in 1936 is that the king of Egypt dies. He has a okay. sudden heart attack and he dies. Damn. And his son, who's 16 at the time, takes over as the king of Egypt. And this son is named? He is King Farouk, who our story is about today. All right, King Farouk. King Farouk. Um, so yeah, so he dies of a heart attack. His son, King Farouk, who's living in London, has to return to England and he's immediately crowned king. Mm-hmm. So some backstory on Farouk to kind of understand, you know, who this nation has been handed to. Yeah. Farouk, he's, he's kind of gifted in the study of language, but that's pretty much it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Let's literally <laughs> it. Or respect to Farouk, traditional education is not his jam. Okay. He's in England at the time trying to get into different British schools, but not really succeeding. He tries to get into Eton. It doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Like He's trying to take entrance exams. It's so he's just gallivanting around England? Yeah, he's kind of like mingling with the social scene. He's mingling with the royal family. Yeah. He's, he's a kid. Like, he's, he's a teenager. He's yeah, he's 16. 16. Um, so that's... And he didn't expect his dad to die. You know, it's like yeah. very sudden. Um, he also has like a huge penchant for gambling and spending sprees. Okay. Which is, you know... You're the king of Egypt, sure, do what you need to do. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, I think it's also like his upbringing, because I always feel bad, because like I look at someone like King Farouk and I'm like, I, I do feel in some ways bad, because like his upbringing is very weird, right? Okay. He, you know, in being raised by his dad, his father only lets him see his mother for one hour a day. And that's it. Hold on. Yeah. Like, so it's a very, it's just his dad is like very controlling, like. One hour a day? One hour a day. Where's mom the entire day? I guess she's maybe in another palace. I don't know. But he only has access to her for one hour a day. He's also not allowed to like mingle with outsiders. So he's only allowed to, you know, his only friends are his sisters. And his dad is controlling all of this? Yeah. His only friends are his sisters and um, an Italian electrician who works at the Summer Palace. Okay. That's that's his social scene. That's kind of sad. It is kind of sad. <laughs> so, like, he's weird. That's like, you really know, upbringing sad. is weird. I don't know. Um, but anyway, Farouk at 16 becomes the king of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, he's massively popular when he comes to the throne. Like, really? Yeah. Like, pharaoh-level popular. Like, no one can really understand it. His dad didn't have really that much popularity. But when he comes, like, people kind of feel like this is the new era of, like, Egypt. Hmm. Farouk is going to lead them into, I don't know, something. 
What made them believe that? I think it's a couple of different things. I think on one hand, like there's a couple of things he did strategically which worked. Yeah. You know, he he was he from the outside was quite like pious and religious. Oh, okay. Which was very important to like quite a few Egyptian people. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always attending mosque, all of that stuff. Um he also like married a middle class woman woman. Mm-hmm. Um and I think also a small part of this is because he famously has a not good relationship with the British. Okay. And people kind of feel like yeah. It's he's like they're like good on Farouk. He's really kind of standing up to. Is it because they thought his father wasn't standing up to the British like that? I don't think it's necessarily that. Farouk like didn't like the ambassador to to the UK. Oh, okay. And had quite a bad relationship with him mm. but it was it was like a weird dynamic because it was kind of like Farouk was like I he's a sick he's 16 he's like I like Italian people he's a kid he's yeah. a kid he's like I like Italian people the British are like World War II is happening mm-hmm. liking Italians is not a good thing yeah they're like kind of worried that he's gonna like go off and like align with you know, Mussolini, like, yeah. you know, um, but he just, he doesn't get along with the British ambassador. He doesn't love them. Yeah. And so initially people kind of are like, oh, I think Farouk's are like the future. Yeah. They're like, forget independence. Like, <laughs> they're like the future's monarchy. Forget independence. <laughs> that is the craziest sentence I've ever heard. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> they're like, they love him. They're like, this is our guy. Um, and Britain kind of sees his popularity and they're like, they kind of think Farouk is a bit of an idiot, but they, they have no choice but to work with him. Because yeah, because he's his, king now. Yeah, he's king and he's a massively popular king. Yeah. No one wants to take him down. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's really like the world that like we're in at this point. World War II's on the horizon. You have a ton of internal conflict. So you have... In Egypt, the nationalists, you have royalists, you have communists, and you have the Muslim Brotherhood. And they all kind of... Have tension between each other? Have tension between each other, but they're all kind of vying for like, you know, they're kind of realizing that post-World War II, there's kind of going to be this moment of Mm. defining what the future looks like. And I think the reason why I kind of wanted to do Egypt is like, you really look at Egypt in this moment as like, definitive for you know the rest of the world is kind of looking at it most african countries have not achieved independence at this point yeah they're kind of looking at egypt as in terms of how are they negotiating with the british how are they essentially creating boundaries which will lead to total independence anyway kind of like wrapping up like where we are in the 1940s, Farouk is kind of entering his 20s. World War II comes around and Britain is like, remember that clause we had? <laughs> I'm dead. They're like, remember that clause where we said we would protect you over anything? Um, yeah, we're going to protect you now, right? They just told them they're going to yeah. protect them. And it's weird because Egypt is kind of insisting they're like, we're not, we don't really want to be involved in World War II. They're insisting that they're neutral. They're like, we don't really need this. You're right. Right. But Britain is like, no, 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 don't worry. I got you. 
and brings a hundred thousand allied troops into Egypt. Right. Oh my god. Yeah, which is becomes this like in addition to the troops that they already had on the Suez Canal. Yeah. And and their their justification is that, you know, they are defending Egypt against an existential threat because World War Two is happening. Right. But Egypt is kind of like, we're not really involved in that. We're not, They're in not our, in really involved at all. Yeah. They kind of had nothing to, to do, do with it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Britain just wanted a reason to go in they there. They did. They were like, this treaty thing, it's not Maybe working. we could have used that to our advantage. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we'll end is with, like, Winston Churchill. It's, like, the 1940s. And Winston Churchill kind of says, you know, like, don't worry, Egypt, you are under British protection, which pisses Egyptian people off. I mean, I understand. Like, you didn't even ask for it. They just kind of came in being like, okay, I'm going to protect you. But you didn't even ask for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't sound like it's going to turn out it's, well. And it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. We will be right back. Sarah and I are both journalists by training, and we spent weeks researching each story that we tell. But history is written by the victors, and many times it's not written at all. If there's something we've shared that you want to challenge, drop us a DM on our Instagram page. We can't wait to hear from you. Let's continue as we drink this ice cream. Back to Egypt. So yeah, things are kind of crazy in Egypt at the start of World War II. Um, but there's this incident that kind of like pushes things over the edge. Mm-hmm. 1942. One of the things about King Farouk that like is like very chaotic is like he changes prime ministers a lot. So he's kind of like constantly like shuffling the cabinet and being like, this prime minister's out, this one's in, this one's out, this one's in. It's chaotic. For any particular reason or just because he can? Because he's a teenager. Oh my God. (laughs) Ruling a country. (laughs) That's the reason. Um, But yes, that's that's kind of what Farouk's doing. Um, Britain kind of gets fed up with it. There's kind of this standoff between a prime minister that, you know, Britain wants and Farouk doesn't want and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And this incident happens in 1942 where, you know, Britain basically surrounds Farouk's palace with tanks, walks in and presents him with a letter of abdication. Hold on. I thought Egypt was not colonized. In what way does that even make any sense to go into basically a free country, surround the palace with tanks, and serve an abdication letter? I mean, these are the questions around this because at the end of the day, it's not a colony and they had no right to do that. But that's what they did anyway because they (laughs) felt like they had the right, right? Yeah. Um, and they, so they kind of present Farouk. They say, you know, you must abdicate right now. And Farouk is kind of in the process of signing the letter when, like, one of his aides interve- one of his aides intervenes and is like, no, 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 don't do this. Kind of is like, right, you know, you know we have the protection. You don't, you don't need to do this, right, right. But the, the situation kind of is gets known by the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Egyptian people are very angry at the British. They're kind of like, how dare you? Just come in. Come, well, not just come in, but like, 
how dare you like humiliate our king like this, right? right? And because Farouk is still very much like on the side of the people. And they're kind of like, you you don't really have a right to do this. Right. Um, so, so it kind of starts like the 1940s is kind of starts this season of real discontentment. You know, even though they come out of World War II relatively okay, yeah. there's this feeling that the British are meddling. The British are, you know, not here for good intentions. We want them out. You know, they're kind of, you know, breaching the spirit of this treaty. Yeah. You know, all this stuff that makes Egyptians progressively become more and more angry with the British. Yeah. Um, but the truth is that, like, now, like, with hindsight, what we can look at is Farouk at this time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the benefit of looking at it historically that people would at that time would have known is that Farouk himself is a bit of a shit show, right? <laughs> like, he's, like, he gambles all the time. He's, like... You know, he's spending a ton of money. Yeah. There's this episode with Winston Churchill where, like, Farouk has, like, you know, he goes to one of the prisons of Egypt and bails out, like, gives a pardon to this, this, like, petty, like, what do you call them? Someone who, like, robs you. like A pickpocket. Yeah. And he gets this pickpocket to teach him how to pickpocket other people. And he famously pickpockets Winston Churchill. Wait, repeat that? He so pickpockets this- Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill and him have a meeting, and Farouk steals Winston Churchill's watch. For what reason? Because he's a kleptomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I can just imagine literally releasing this other man out of jail just so he can teach him how to pickpocket a prime minister from England. Yeah. He's such a kid. Yeah, it's it's not good. <laughs> it's really not good. Um, so yeah, so that's what what's happening with Farouk. But okay. kind of on the other side of this, we have this this kind of movement growing in Egypt, which is, you know, um, at that like kind of in the late 1940s, Egypt then gets involved in the Arab-Israeli war, where yes. they they really you know feel like you know, they need to make a stand for Palestine Mm -hmm. against Israel um, and do that quite boldly, Yeah, which is great. But um, there was a boldness about the Egyptians that was not warranted. You know, they were were like, within two weeks, we're going to be in the capital of Israel waving our flags. Okay. Right? Which is like... Bold to win a war in two weeks, but they felt like they could do it. You uh, know, they could confidence comes from somewhere. <laughs> they could not do it. Uh, it was a dismal failure. It was Yikes. terrible. It was very humiliating for the Egyptians. They massively lost that war. And kind of what happens is you have these soldiers coming home from this war. Yeah. Who were like, kind of looking at things and being like, how did we do so badly against Israel? Mm-hmm. Like, what happened? Yeah. Um, and one of the, you know, the key parts of that is kind of this rumor that was circulating that the army hasn't been equipped with proper weaponry. Oh. Right? So oh. that, like, the, the, the equipment they've been equipped with is, is defective. Okay. Right? Which, like, you can go in, like, back and forth about, like, kind of 
whether or not that was true, right. to what extent that was really true. But that's like the narrative that like these soldiers come back with is that okay. like the government has not equipped them for this war and it's the government's fault that that they lost the war. That they've lost this war. Okay. Right. And at the end of the day, the government with Farouk kind of going back and forth with like this prime minister and that prime minister or whatever, he's the government. Yeah. Right. And then right. kind of they decide that like something's got to change. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have this man called Gamal Abdel Nassar Hussein hmm. who comes home. He's fought in Fallujah um, and he's really shocked about the difference between kind of how Egypt has been reporting what happened in the war and what was actually happening. You know, Egypt kind of saying like these things like, oh, you know, they took this city when in actuality they hadn't taken that city. And he's like, there's a massive disconnect happening, right? Um, And him together with um, Mohammed um, Naguib, Mm-hmm. Um, they bring together a few other young officers and decide to form what's a clandestine network within the army um, with the goal of creating a new political order within Egypt. And their main goal is actually to rid Egypt of the British. Yeah. Get Britain out. But Nassar is really interesting because he kind of thinks about it and he's like, you know who's worse than the British? Farouk. I'm screaming. <laughs> what? <laughs> we got to take up Britain, but we have to take up Farouk first. Um, and they kind of assume that it'll take a while to do it. Um, but it ends up happening much sooner than they think it will. I'm kind of curious to know what, like, that the catalyst was that, like, changed their mind from the British to Farouk. I mean, it's a lot of things. Farouk obviously take this, takes this huge blow in terms right. of like defective equipment, right. right? which is very important to the military. Right. But there's also, I think, another incident that kind of sours people to Farouk, which mm-hmm. is that like, it sounds so petty, but also really British. He, <laughs> Farouk, when the bombings start during World War II, yeah. refuses to turn off the palace's lights. Which, What's the importance of that? Which is that, like, you know, when when there's bombings, yeah. they kind of identify targets based on lights. Right. right. Farouk is kind of like, mm, nah. That's what happens <laughs> when you put a kid on the throne. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> I'm not turning out the lights. Wow. Um, that is yeah. so interesting. Yeah, so it's things like that which have kind of like over time yeah. made him, you know, he's not super loved anymore. Yeah. Anyway, Farouk's government, it spends years like kind of negotiating with Britain, being like, you know, get out. Yeah. And like, nah, bitch. And then Farouk's like, <laughs> get out. And Britain's like, no. Um, <laughs> the and, British really don't want to leave. Yeah, Egypt. they're like, we want the Swiss Canal. <laughs> Um, but in, you know, in 1951, Farouk's government is kind of like, we've had enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've actually breached the 1936 treaty because you've exceeded 10,000 troops. Right. right? And so they, they work with guerrilla groups to kind of start to attack British targets within the canal zone. Mm -hmm. For months, you know, these guerrilla groups 
with support of Farouk's government, clash with the British army units, and it's kind of going to month after month progressively worse. But when things really escalate and what's known as like the main um, movement of like revolution in Egypt is, is in 1952. Yeah. You know, the British troops bomb an Egyptian police compound and they kill 50 people. Wow. Which is obviously not received well. Yeah. The day afterwards, mobs form in Cairo um, and people start to destroy any kind of foreign property and mm-hmm. it sparks a revolution, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and and quite incredibly so of just wanting the British out. And all it is, the British could have avoided if they just left those people alone. I mean, the British can avoid a lot of things. <laughs> but anyway, um, kind of in that moment... Nassar and Naguib are like, this is our moment. Yeah. They're like, let's take Farouk out. Wow. Right. Um, so July 1952, Farouk is feeling confident enough that he leaves Cairo and goes to his holiday palace. I would love to have a holiday palace. Anyway. You know, I dream of having a holiday palace, a holiday villa, a holiday something. <laughs> <laughs> Anything. Anyway, Farouk leaves Cairo, goes to his holiday palace in Alexandria. July 20th, he invites a group of wealthy socialites for a night of gambling. Oh, my God. He gets a phone call. It's the prime minister. The prime minister tells Farouk that he's heard from a police spy that there is a group of dissident officers who are operating covertly within the army and that that summer, they are going to overthrow Farouk. Huh. I feel like anyone in the situation would be like, oh, shit, let me, let me get out of the situation. Farouk's response to the prime minister is that he asks him to read out the list of officers involved. Yeah. And when he hears their identities, he says, ha, 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 a bunch of pimps. Hold and he goes on. back to gambling. He doesn't take this thing seriously at all. Nope. He just felt like that those officers were too junior to pose any kind of threat to him. Why do I feel like that's going to bite him in the ass? It's because it's going to bite him in the ass. <laughs> um, so the, the free officers hear this and they're like, we weren't going to do it, but now that he thinks we're going to do it and hasn't responded, might as we well, might just, as well do just do it. it. <laughs> um, and they decide on, they have a meeting two days to July 22nd, mm-hmm. and they decide that let's overthrow King Farouk tomorrow. Damn. And this plan is so uncertain that wow. Farouk finds out that the plan is happening at as specific as 7 p.m. the next day. He's like, no, no, no. I got this. <laughs> um, he don't got it. But uh, in response, he orders the arrest of all the free officers, mm-hmm. which doesn't do shit because they're like, we're about to overthrow the government. Like, this doesn't mean anything to yeah, us. Yeah, this means shit. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, it's the day of the coup. The free office, it reminds me of like that Friends episode where they're like, they know that, we know that, they know that, we know. Like the free office. They, everyone just knows what's going on. exactly the plan and yet no one does anything, anything about to it. stop the yeah. plan. 
Um, anyway, it's the day of the coup. The free officers do exactly what they say they're going to do. And just like clockwork that night, July 23rd, they begin their coup, and it takes them six hours to take control of Cairo. Uh, but reminded that Farouk's in Alexandria at this point. Yeah. Right. Um, so he realizes kind of how serious this is. He reaches out to the U.S. and the U.K. for help. The US, U.K. says, nah, bitch. <laughs> Good luck. I mean. They're like, we hate you anyway. Um, but, yeah. So that doesn't work out. Does the U.S. say no too? Yeah. But they agree. The U.S. in particular be, agrees to kind of be like this negotiator, this mediator between Farouk and the free officers. Mm-hmm. So July 24th rolls around. A representative of the free officers comes to Farouk and says, these are our terms. This is what we want to happen. Yeah. Come negotiate with us. Yeah. Farouk is kind of like, nah. The next day, July 25th, Farouk heads to his other summer palace in Alexandria um, in his red Mercedes because he only drove red Mercedes. Wow. Um, And he comes with 800 people to defend him. Are they all Sudanese? Um, which is a whole thing that we don't have time to explore. Uh, that is so interesting. Yeah. Okay. And Farouk comes with his red hunting rifle and to defend okay. himself. Um, and when the free officers come, this shootout happens between them with the free officers trying to penetrate the, the this palace. Yeah. And Farouk is you know, himself trying to shoot at them. That happens, but eventually the U.S. on that day, you know, negotiates a ceasefire. Yeah. And by the morning of July 26th, the free officers present Farouk with an ultimatum. They say, leave Egypt and abdicate the throne by 6 p.m. that day or get executed. And that's what he did. He He just left. 6 p.m. he was gone and he never returned to Egypt. He left. He's still 16 at this point. No. Oh, no. <laughs> the years of robot. That's how time works. Um, Farouk takes power in 1936. And this yeah. happens in the ni- like 1952, I believe. Oh, okay. So he's now like in his early 30s. Early 30s. Um, but he abdicates the throne. He gives the power to his um, baby son. Um, so Egypt is now technically ruled by, by a, a baby, baby. Um, who became King Faud II. Yeah. Um, but this was just really ceremonial. Um, Egypt was ruled by Naguib, who became the first president of Egypt, and Nassau later, who became the second president of wow. Egypt. Wow. And the free officers... They abolished the monarchy and turned Egypt into a republic within a year. Egypt is like, it has everything. It has yeah. a monarchy. It has foreign intervention. It has royalists. It has communists. Yeah. It has the Muslim Brotherhood. Like, it's this melting pot of just everyone trying to figure out, like, what is this country going to look like yeah. afterwards? And there's an argument to be made that, like, had Farouk not been such a shit show... They like, could have worked. Like the things could have been very, very different. different. Um, and kind of like looking at where everyone went from there. You know, Farouk went into exile in Monaco, where yeah. he he lived until his death. Sad. Um, this relevance of like the situation in Egypt was really huge. It was 
the end of a 150-year dynasty, which mm-hmm. is the Muhammad Ali dynasty, and it was the last monarchy of Egypt. Yeah. It was also the first time in 2,500 years that Egypt had been ruled by native Egyptians. Egyptian yes, when the he was Albanian. He was de- descended from Albanians. Yeah. When, so when the free officers took over, they were native Egyptians. Yeah. And Egypt kind of goes back. After 2,500 years. That's crazy. To control 2,500 years? Yeah. It's huge. Wow. Yeah. That's a really long time. It's huge. To basically be ruled by foreigners. Yeah. 100%. Constant foreigners going back and forth. What's interesting is that Farouk's belongings in Egypt are then auctioned off to kind of raise funds for the state. Yeah. Um, And then they really see like the extent of what Farouk was doing, yeah, I guess. Um, you know, he had 2,000 silk shirts. He had 10,000 silk ties. He had 50 walking sticks made of pure gold studded with diamonds. Hold on, this is a real... He had an autographed portrait of Adolf Hitler. Um, and Let's crown go back to jewel, that for a second. The crown jewel. Where does one get in... Uh, Probably, obviously in person. The crown jewel is that Farouk had... What is believed at the time to be the biggest porn collection in the world, with hundreds of thousands of photos of naked people. Wait, what was this man doing as he was <laughs> really collecting porn? <laughs> I don't know what to say. That is actually That's insane. Really bizarre. Oh, my God. That's actually really crazy. Yeah. Um, as for General Nassar, yeah. you know, he eventually becomes president and takes power. Um, within two years, negotiates the British exit from the Suez Canal. Wow. Um, which marks the first time since 1882, mm-hmm. um, where, where there's no British presence, military presence in Egypt. In Egypt. Um, and it, it doesn't come easily, mm-hmm. but I'm sure, you know, but it happens. But I feel like in this podcast, I would like a button for every time a nationalist hero becomes a dictator. dictator. <laughs> Honestly, I, I think we need that yeah, because like, it's such an interesting dictator that happens. Tell us about this dictator. Nassau becomes a terrible dictator. Oh, no. Because he accomplishes everything he accomplishes. I know we should like to take shots. Yeah. We should be like, every time we realize someone is a dictator, we should take a shot. He sets up a military dictatorship. Totally repressive. He bans all political parties. And oh my God. more than 3,000 people are held in his concentration camps during his rule. And for what? To rule Egypt. I will never, probably to the end of my days, what, become understand. a dictator? I'll just understand this pattern and evolution into dictatorship. 3,000 people in concentration camps? Yeah. And for what? Power. That's insane. Yeah. Banning all political parties. Yeah. So he was like, I am the only one who is fit enough 
to lead Egypt where I want it to. Yep. Nobody can oppose me. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) (laughs) That's what dictatorship is. Shit. (laughs) Yeah. It's not good. But it's so interesting because Egypt wasn't even like a colony, but they were still treated like one. And the pattern that they follow is still the one of a colony that got independence, which is so interesting. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. I just. (laughs) It's a weird story. (laughs) This one is weird. It really started with the British at the Suez Canal pretending to try to protect Egypt from World War II. And now it moved into this dictatorship. That's. Wow. Yeah. Well. I hope you all enjoyed that story about Egypt. We'll um, leave you on that so we'll note. We'll leave you on that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.